Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Today's guest is one of the best personalities in our sport, so I'm going to speed through the bio without trying to skip anything, but I really want to get to today's guest. So today's guest played for the Westside Volleyball Club. He went on to play for the University of Winnipeg, where he's a bronze medalist. He won the GPAC Conference. He was a two-time conference all-star. He went on to play professionally in Finland, where he won that league championship. He's represented Canada on the beach. He's also played AVP in the Bat Tour proud member of the Toronto Rough Riders, and he's coached for the Halton Hurricanes, where he's a provincial and national champion. He's also the current head coach of Brock University, where they're an OUA silver medalist. And he's also got a couple world master medals to his name. So he's won a gold in beach and a silver in soccer. Please welcome to the show, Steve Delaney. Steve, thanks for doing this, man. Thank you so much for having me, Josh. It's a pleasure and a privilege. Well, this is awesome, man. I think people who know you well will, will not be surprised by this, but when you were growing up, I heard you were a heck of a soccer player. You did some track stuff. When did you choose volleyball? When did you choose that that was going to be like the sport that you wanted to play at a post-secondary and pro level? Oh, man. So I was playing soccer first as a kid, probably from you know grade one till about 15. And then um, something happened where I remember we were playing volleyball. Like I started, I guess, volleyball in uh, in like middle school, I don't even know if that's a thing anymore, but like grade six, seven, and eight. And uh, kind of fell in love with volleyball, just, you know, you playing, you play against other schools, and uh, you don't have a ton of um, practice and stuff, but I, I liked volleyball. And then when we got to grade nine, uh, the very first volleyball tournament we had, there was a, a scout there who was a coach at Westside Volleyball, and he said, hey, why don't you come in and try out for this, this club team called Westside? And this is like, Dan Lewis and I are at the same tryout. Um, you know, Mike Spence was a couple years older than us. And, uh, you know, it, it was a prestigious thing. You had the black West Side jacket. They talked about going to nationals, which I didn't even know what that meant at the time. So I was able to go and, and try out. And I was lucky enough to make that team. I think I was like probably like the 11th or 12th person uh, who made the team. And because of the involvement in volleyball through the winter, you know, I, I, uh, I stopped playing indoor soccer and then I stopped playing soccer and then and, um, I remember being in Dan Lewis's room one day after like uh, I don't know I think we went to the park or like we're, we're playing pepper or something like that and he had cut out on his on his wall that uh, you know the average salary in Italy at the time was like a six-figure number and like at that point in time we're 15 we're like that's what we're gonna do so um, you know it was an early early uh, thought that maybe we could actually do something with the sport but we didn't really know anything at that time we just Loved playing volleyball and would uh, would take any opportunity to do so. <laughs> and what can you tell us about Dan Lewis as a teenager? Because one of my favorite lines from uh, Mike Sleen's episode was him walking up to the draw board at a beach tournament when they were still young pups going, how in the heck are we ranked fifth in this tournament? So what was he like as a teenager? Well, uh, gee, I mean, what can I say on here? But uh, no, Dan, Dan and I were good friends um, as a teenager. You know, you, you you couldn't stop Dan. Like, you couldn't stop him if he wanted to ride his bike faster than you. You couldn't stop him if he, you know, wanted to, to bounce the ball higher than you. Like, the story I kind of remember about Dan is, you know, he would, I remember playing against him at University of Manitoba. And this is like, we're both, we're both rookies and we're both playing. And, you know, he gets a block on our right side player and he does the airplane, you know, around the court with his arms, arms out there. He would, he would, you know, yell if you got a block and, and stuff like that but uh it was fun hanging out with him you know we had a bunch of uh, pretty good friend group from our west side volleyball days and we all we all hung out together and uh, there was no sense of laughs or uh sorry no shortness of, of laughs or excitement when you're hanging out with dan 
Awesome. Awesome. And what can you tell us about that Westside Volleyball Club? Like me being an 85, I got to play against them growing up, but they don't exist now. And I think Pac-Man's obviously filled the void for that community, but Westside was a top club for a lot of years. So who can you kind of credit for building that or who had some influences on your generation? Because a lot of players came from that club, right? Yeah, so you're talking about a guy named Greg Miller, who, funny enough, uh, ended up coaching with the Ruffies, uh, you know, uh, you know, five or five to ten years ago. Um, but he's probably the reason why the likes of Mike Chaluka, Jeff White, Anthony Fenton, Dave Cantor, Mike Spence, uh, myself, Craig Dona, Dan Lewis, we we all we all played West Side. And the thought, like when you joined West Side. You did it because you wanted to win a provincial and national championship. There wasn't really, you know, it wasn't about, go, you know, having fun. I mean, we did a lot of that, but it was about making it to nationals and winning provincials, making it to nationals, and uh, and about excelling, and then and then trying to play at the uh, at the university level. So that's you know, Westside was was founded by Reg Miller, and you know, the coach that came and found me was John Bird, who I believe founded Bronte Beach after that. So that was myself and Dan's uh, first first kind of like club volleyball coach, um, and we would we would go down to the uh, U.S. Nationals. We would travel all over. Uh, you know, we were always in the hunt to win a national medal. We did it. At, uh, we won nationals at I think when we were sixteen, and then uh, we had a, a really good team where we were playing in juvenile at that time, which is they had the two years together, right? So it's not like sixteen u, seventeen u, eighteen u. It's you have juvenile which is i believe it would have been 17 u and 18 u together and uh we were supposed to win it that year we we kind of choked in the final and uh, semi-final and didn't make the final but uh we lost to a team from bc which um i believe it was white rock and then some of those guys ended up going to manitoba we all got to know them as we we left west side to go uh and play at university and um so that was that was kind of the west side story i mean you know we used to watch well, the man child Jeff White. I, one time he was at my uh, my high school for a, a high school tournament. He actually broke the gym floor with his bike. We had that parquet like <laughs> squared stuff. I remember because I'm doing lines and he goes up and hits this ball. It was like just outside the attack line, but one of the little chips popped up, and I was like, "Wow, that that's what you know. That's that's a hard hard hit." You know, guys like Mike Chalupa, like you know, he's the reason why I wanted to play volleyball. He just Looked cool doing it. He was way up there in the air, and he could smash the ball really hard, get a ton, ton of blocks. And you know, it, it was uh, it was fun to watch a six foot seven guy jump forty inches, and it just it just kind of wowed you. And, and um, we have Westside Volleyball to thank for that because they had great athletes and uh, some really good recruiting and good coaching. Awesome, awesome, and yeah, just help me out with the timeline. So you, when you say competing for a national championship. Would you be competing against like Dustin Reed at Wolves and some other like OVA teams where Solar's good in that year? And who were some guys out of province that you would have been uh, competing against? Yeah, so 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 uh, Dustin Reed would be older, but Daryl Reed, his brother, was our age group. Mike Sleen would play with uh, with Dustin and uh, and Daryl and those guys for Ganaraska. Uh, but Mike Mike's a year older than I am, Mike Sleen. So we'd be playing against those guys. And then you know when we go out to nationals, um, these are guys like. Carol Olfwaite, uh, you know, Chris Galvanzowski, who uh, I, I believe passed away the year before I got to Winnipeg. You know, uh, Paul Durden and those guys were about, uh, I believe, a year or two older than us. So we were the generation under the Anthony Penn, Jeff White, David Cantor guys. So, um, you know, these are like, I believe, uh, Chris Andriotti from from Calgary and the Dinos. Uh, those are the guys that we would have uh, we would have played against at, at nationals uh, when we went out there. But that, that's what the big thing was. Like you, could, you could do everything you wanted in your province, and hopefully you'd win provincials. And 
you know, we would go out to to nationals and, and then, you know, compete against the best players from, from everywhere else. Nice, nice. Yeah. And, and about that era, I think nationals wasn't an open tournament. You had to have a certain result, right? So did that help Correct. you uh, think that post-secondary was going to be an option? Is that how you as an Ontario guy got some attention to leave the province? Was you were a national champs guy and that's how you met some coaches from Canada West? Yeah, it's very different than it is now, right? Like now you can just sign up and go to nationals, not saying that it's any better or any worse. I just think that's, uh, you know, a byproduct of everybody playing now. There's so many more people playing, so they're opening up to more people. But but back then, if you weren't top two in your province, you didn't go to nationals. So you literally had the best teams uh, at nationals um, go. Uh, and yeah, so because I, I think the year I got recruited, the same year Dan got recruited, uh, you know, Larry McKay saw... Um, he played a couple of matches and, and at University of Winnipeg and he said, uh, hey, you know, we, we'd like to have you out here. And I was looking at some schools in, in Ontario, but, uh, you know, at that time there was no scholarships in Ontario. Um, and it was, you know, a small amount of scholarship in, in Manitoba, but also the cost of living there was, was way less. It's like we didn't have res, but I remember my rent being $250 a month. Uh, and I think my tuition was like $1,500 a semester. Now that's, I'm going to say 1995. Right. So uh, it was just a different landscape uh, back then. Like the Internet was just becoming a thing. Right. So uh, that'll put the, you know, the, the, the time time period for you. Nice. And would you hang out with Dan Lewis or is there a big rivalry with Toba and Winnipeg about uh, when you were at school? Like, were you guys buddies or it was hands off until the season was done? Oh, no, we were buddies. We, we, we grabbed our stuff uh, from Ontario. We put it in a crate together, shipped it out there. Um, I'd go over to his campus and hang out with him, and he'd come downtown into Winnipeg sometimes and hang out with me. We still remain really close. We're very close to stay. I, I saw Dan like you know at least three or four times over the summer. Uh, we're in contact all the time, you know, talking volleyball stuff because we're both coaching now. And um, yeah, so there was there was obviously a rivalry. Like we had a a, a a bet where if I blocked him or he blocked me, he'd have to buy the other guy a pop. But we played the left side, so there was very we were both team one. So. The odd time we would get the opportunity to block against each other, and uh, we also played against each other on the beach on the Lavatour a lot. So, um, you know, a friendly rivalry for sure. But uh, you know, we're still we're still good friends. He, he was at my wedding. Uh, you know, we'll be friends forever. Awesome. And uh, we just had Steve Brinkman on the show. You wouldn't have had a chance to listen to it, but our listeners would at this point. And obviously his era, he played in this GPAC conference too. Can you just explain what that was? Obviously you guys taking down the conference, but with U sports changing a little bit, can you just describe what your league base was like? And obviously what out West level of volleyball was in your era? Yeah. So we still played Canada West. It was just the beginning of the interlock schedule. So, you know, we were in the Canada West, but to, so we competed against all those teams. So we, how they used to do it were, if we had to play Alberta, we would fly and play Alberta on the Saturday night, uh, or sorry, the Friday night and then the Saturday night, and then we'd fly home. The next year, Alberta would come and play us in a doubleheader in our gym. Um, but to go to nationals, we had one berth, right? And so in our, uh, I believe in our conference at the time, Brandon wasn't a, wasn't a program yet in terms of volleyball. So it was us, Manitoba, and Regina, right? So it was always at that time, you know, Winnipeg and Manitoba, it was a three, uh, two out of three matches, three out of five sets for each match. And, um, you know, it was a battle. And we would both go to nationals each year because that's how, back then, that's how wild cards were done. So I think in our first year, we lost in the third match in the five in Manitoba's gym. But we went into uh, nationals as the wild card. Um, and I believe it was 
I want to say the fifth or fourth seed. That was the year that Dan, in his rookie year, he won you know MVP and was uh, CIU at the time, rookie of the year. Um, and the next year, we beat Manitoba. And I don't think they went to nationals that year um, because someone else might have gotten the wild card. And so, yeah, I mean, I think they've changed it now where I'm not sure how they qualify out of GPAC, but now you'd have to compete with Brandon. Um, I don't know if U of S is now in, in part of GPAC, but um, it's uh, they still have the Canada West interlocking schedule. Uh, so you're, 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 you felt like a pro athlete because you get on a plane, you go play University of Calgary. You get on a plane, you go play University of uh, or UBC, right? Nice, nice. And what can you tell us about Larry McKay? His name comes up a few times on the show and obviously a, a great coach in our sport, but not the most like overwhelming personality, right? Like huge volleyball mind, knows tactics, technique, all that stuff, but he's not going to be the loudest guy in the room, right? So what can you tell us about his coaching style and his influence on your game and, and how Winnipeg's been able to be competitive basically every year he's been there, right? Yeah, so I mean, Larry was, uh, um, you know, it, a great recruiter, um, very soft-spoken. He, he would explain things to you as to why you need to do something, uh, kind of prompt you with asking you questions as to, you know, what what did we think about this attack here, Steve, or watching video? And that was that was the thing, too. Like, very good uh, at scouting other teams and, and coming up with a game plan in terms of uh, how we're going to attack them. Like, we knew we'd watch video and we would, we would know where their setters' tendencies were. And this is before, like, data volley and volley metrics and all that stuff, right? So we're doing it old school. So imagine this. I think one of the big things that, that separated it at that time was Larry was a full-time coach where if you go back here around that time and you talk to like the Dave Prestons and the Oris Stankos of the world who were coaching at that time, they probably weren't full-time. So Larry had the opportunity to sit in his office with two VCRs, splice video together, and then come up with a game plan. And, uh, and, and we were able to, uh, you know, execute that. We would go and we would have one team put on the other team's kind of numbers and they would run the, the plays that we're going to see against us in the matches coming up on the weekend. So, you know, he was, uh, he was really good to me and uh, really good at just getting his message across. Um, he was also one of his, his great things was he would do a, a pump up highlight film. So I remember we'd see like, you know, three images of me hitting and then we'd see Rudy being carried off the field from obviously the movie, movie Rudy or like a cool, <laughs> cool, like, slow-mo thing from white man can't jump and it would go into Dan Lewis getting blocked by like our right side or McLeod, you know, hitting an overpass or something. So it was really cool how he would do those highlight films to music and blend them in with, uh, with our kind of uh, scouting film. It was a really cool thing to see. Awesome. Awesome. And you would have been faced with the tough challenge. You may have handed this already that in, in high school, you and Dan Lewis knew what professional volleyball was and you were looking forward to getting those contracts. So was it a tough decision for you to leave school early and pursue professional volleyball? Well, it depends who you ask. If you ask my mom, <laughs> you know, it was, it, it, it was tough. You know, and for me too, right. Uh, Mike Luke and I came pretty good friends at a young age. I was actually working at a, as a busboy at a nightclub that had a beach volleyball court. Uh, it was called Richards. It was actually right across the street from my high school. So Chip and I met there and he basically used me for a couple of years to get into this nightclub slash bar that, that, uh, that people wanted to go to in Mississauga, which no longer exists. But because of that, um, Mike was actually playing overseas, I think in Paris at the time. Then he went to Germany and he played a little bit in Italy. So I knew it was a real thing because don't forget, Mike was a Westside volleyball alumni, right? So, you know, he went to Mac for a couple of years, when, then he went to the national team and then was playing overseas. So this was something that I got to hear about all the time. And it was a really cool thing. And, you know, 
I, I really, it was something I really wanted to do. And, you know, you know, after I was, uh, done my second year at Winnipeg, um, I was actually at U of T for a semester and, um, the opportunity came up for me to go to Finland. And I have Mike to thank for that because, um, he had a friend he was playing with in Germany in the Bundesliga that knew of a team in Finland that needed a, a player. So, you know, they signed me and then I went and lived in Finland for a year. Awesome. Yeah. And before we jump into that pro thing, just for our listeners, uh, you did go back later and, and complete your degree. So congratulations on that. Like it's harder to go back later in life, but that was something, I don't know if you promised your parents or just something you wanted to accomplish, but for the record, you do have your degree. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, here's what happened, right? Like I, it wasn't even thinking of coaching, uh, in the realms of coaching. It was, it was, it was a little bit, but at the time I was coaching the hurricanes and I'm, I said, you know, if I'm going to have the girls I coach at the time, uh, and I'm going to tell them they should go to you know university or college or somewhere and get you know a degree. Then I probably need to do that myself. I also want to be a good example for my kids. And I did. I remember I took my mom to the keg. You know, before I said I was going to go to Finland, and I promised her I'd go back. So there was a piece of that too, kind of like honoring that that portion of it, which was kind of big. And you know, it was all it was all online. Uh, and I when I went back at 41, uh, which I really liked, um, I kind of excelled at it online. Uh, but I didn't overload myself. Like I was doing each, each, uh, each course was 10 weeks long. So, uh, you did, I would do one course at a time and, uh, I had a certain amount of work I needed to get done every week. And I was able to do that while I was working and coaching and I just had to be good at time management. Um, but I was able to get it done. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Like you said, just a, a good role model for your kids and the athletes you're working with. That's, that's great. So congratulations on that. And just switching back to volleyball, you had mentioned that you went to university like pre YouTube era, right? So chip yeah. was, it was a big uh, help getting you that pro contract, but did you go through an agent or honestly it was word of mouth and chip kind of vouched for you and that got you your first deal? Yeah. So, I mean, here's another kind of like a uh, little bit of homage to Larry McKay. So I was out there, uh, in Winnipeg, uh, I think it was for a beach term or something. So I said to Larry, uh, I was actually going to be shopping at a couple of U.S. schools because I was looking to potentially transfer. So I went and Larry let me sit in his office with the two VCRs and I put together a tape. And, you know, I sent that tape out to a couple of, uh, of universities and had some interest, uh, but ne- never ended up you know, doing it. But that same tape ended up uh, in Finland. And um, then they, they flew me over for a tryout, uh, and I tried out, and I made the team. But it was a combination of Mike, um, you know, vouching for me, and then uh, the, the tape that I had. Because in the tape, I was playing against, it was a Dino Cup kind of highlight reel, so it was, you know, against Stanford and uh, University of Santa Barbara and uh, University of Calgary. So um, those were teams that were well-known, I guess, in Europe, and I guess that kind of helped. And whereabouts in Finland were you? Because when we had Felipe Himata Paredes on the show, he talked about if you go too far north, like sunlight becomes an issue and mental health becomes an issue. So where whereabouts were you? And what was like the off-court stuff like for you just getting used to the lifestyle of living in another country? Yeah, so I was um, living uh, in a town called Barakos. And we would play our matches in Barakos at another town called Piexpiki, which was 20 minutes away. So we would go to practice there. That's about four hours north of Helsinki. Um, but we did have some games that were like 10 hours north from where I lived in Barakos in a town called Rovaniemi, And that's like Arctic Circle. So like we're on the road and I remember we're stopping on the way to this match, the 10 hour drive, we're in the bus and the guys want to take me in to see the real Santa Claus. So think of this as the actual North Pole. <laughs> and 
and they're like, come on in, you can see Santa. And I'm like, man, I can see him in any shopping mall back home in Canada. Like, this is no real <laughs> big thing, but they thought it was a, uh, you know, a big tourist attraction, I guess, for them. So, uh, sorry, for me. Um, and Finnish people were really, really nice, but I did sleep through practice. So I, uh, I had a situation where I had to come home. Um, my dad had passed away right after we played a Champions League match. And uh, I had a week to come home. And this was kind of when, I guess, the seasons were changing or it was getting a little bit, you know, less daylight. And so I think the very first practice I, I, I went back, you know, I wake up to go to the bathroom, it's dark outside. I'll go back to sleep. I wake up, it's still dark outside. Then I woke up, so what's going on here? And the next thing you know, it's like six o'clock at night and I slept through practice. So <laughs> it was an adjustment. Uh, again, like, internet was dial-up. Like, um, one of the players from Brock uh, is now in Switzerland, Laura Candada, and she was leaving. She said, Steve, what can I expect? And I said, hey, you know what? You've got it made because you have stuff like Netflix, FaceTime, you know, Instagram. Like, I didn't have any of that. I, I remember I would go and plug my, my laptop in. I would start the whole dial-up thing, take out the garbage, come back, clean the kitchen, and then I'd be connected to the internet. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. And then after Finland, I believe you went and played in France. And what was that experience like? Because I think the France League has been pretty friendly to Canadians, right? A lot of people have played there over the years. And I believe you had a Canadian on your team when you went there, right? Yeah. So actually, it was funny enough. So there's another one I owe to Chip because uh, Chip and I played on the same team in Montpellier. And this is the year that Durden and Haldane and Ken Greaves were in Paris. And they won, they won the Super Cup. So that's like all the top Champions League you know, uh, champions go and play. And uh, they, they won the Super Cup. So, yeah, uh, we had an awesome time there. Uh, we had an apartment in Cardon, and uh, we lived on a beach in the Mediterranean. It was actually a nude beach, so we could, you know, come home from practice and uh, take a, a walk in the uh, Mediterranean and take, take in some scenery and, and do things that you do when you're, you know, 22 after practice. Um, and it was, it was a great time there. Uh, we met a lot of good people. You know, I, I learned a lot about wine in that time. I remember telling my... My coach at the time that, uh, you know, back here in, in, in Canada, we can get wine from a box and make it and, uh, and like drink it in a couple of weeks. And he was like, this is not possible. This is not, not possible <laughs> to, to drink. This wine from a box is not possible. Uh, because they're like, you go to a gas station there and pick up an amazing bottle of wine for like $2. <laughs> that's awesome and what was it like playing in that community because people will recognize Montpellier as like a, a place that still hosts beach volleyball tournaments on the FIB world tour they still have a great indoor team like are, are the volleyball fans pretty passionate there we had a lot we would sell out most of the time and I don't know like let's call that like 3,000 4,000 people maybe in, in our in our gym there but the thing was is that it's a club so it's the European club kind of um, kind of format so like Montpellier has obviously a soccer team that I think they're in the first division in France now, but our, our handball team was the Champions League champions, right? So we also had a rugby team, right? So you have an athletic sport club there, which is very uh, prevalent in Europe. So it was a really cool scenario because you're living in a, you know, a small city, but if you're an athlete, you're kind of treated like a celebrity. Um, I remember the car that we had had a vehicle wrap with Chip's picture on it. Nice. So we're pulling up the stoplights and people are like looking at us going like, well, what's, what's going on now? It's, it's not the, mo the best way if you're trying to like fly below the radar. Um, but I'll never forget it. Uh, we were playing Paris Volley. I think it's like maybe four days after they won the super cup and they beat Trevisio um, from Italy in the final. And, uh, they, uh, come to the morning servant pass and they see our car parked out front. So they, uh, 
had some fun things to write in permanent marker all over Mike's face and jersey and all kinds of stuff that uh, the poor sponsor had to try to get off uh, of the uh, of the vehicle wrapped car. So I think uh, Paul Durden and uh, and Jason Haldane and maybe Kent Greaves had uh, had some funny things to. Uh, to write on, uh, on Mike's, Mike's <laughs> sticker. <laughs> awesome. And now, now help me again with the timeline. If I'm off, you can just guide me back on a track, but did you choose to go beach after playing in France or was there one more year pro before you decided to be beach full time? Yeah, no, I was beach afterwards. So what had happened was, um, I was still playing beach, but it was a weird year. So I got carded on the beach that year. And it was, it was really weird because, you know, at that time, there was no national team selection or even a, a, a training camp where you're going to go and, 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 and do a bunch of drills with other Canadians. You had to earn your, your carding at the time by going to international competitions and, and having a certain result. So at that time, it was Mark John, Jody Conrad, and they, they had just, I guess, uh, given up two more full-time cards or full cards. So I had one. I believe Aaron Cadu had the other one. But what that meant was is you know, Mike's and I are buddies, and here we are in in Spain, in Mallorca, and I'm I had just been to a Champions League soccer game with Mike the day before, and now I'm cheering against him as he's playing a, a German team uh, because if he wins, I don't get carded, right? So that was that was just after um, or just before France, and then after France uh, was when I started playing with James Gravel, and uh, and we got carded again that year, but again by having to go and, and earn your carding internationally. And how did you like to personally approach that just as a person in general? Like you mentioned, like you and Sling would be buddies off the court, but if he wins, that means you don't get carded, right? So was it just as simple as between the lines for you? Or how did you stay friends with these guys who were technically like affecting your funding to play volleyball? You know, that's a great question. But I think what happens is generally when you're at tournaments anyway, like even later on in the Rough Rider years or through university or what have you, you're playing against your buddies anyway. So you're used to competing against your friends. And you know, the only thing with the FIVB piece at that time was you're now flying and, 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 and going through um, all kinds of craziness uh, in terms of travel and expenses uh, involved in that travel because you're flying over to Europe. It's at least 1100 bucks to get there. Then you've got to, I mean, at the time, like Slinger and I, we weren't in the main draw all the time. So you've got to pay for your, your, your transportation, your hotel, your food. Like that's all coming out of your your budget, whether you have sponsors or whether you've saved up money or whether you're owing your partner, you know, 10 grand at the end of the year, you know, it was tough. So we were still able to keep a really cool relationship. And I think it's an important piece of it because there were times too, where you have a country go to qualifier and you're flying across the, the pond to go play somebody that you could have played here in Toronto. Cause there wasn't like it is today where you have the start system. Like if I remember having to play Aaron Cadu in a country quota match before we could even get into the qualifier. And that was tough, right? Because now you don't even get to get any points because you, you get like one or two points for being in the country quota match. And did you find it freeing as an athlete, that carding system? Because the, the pendulum swung completely the other way where now there's mandatory training, they get a support service. Yeah. Like there's a lot more that goes into carding where it sounds like you were totally results driven, very evaluation friendly, get your results, you're going to be carded. But there wasn't a central training program. I don't even think there was technically a national team head coach, right? Like you were basically on your own. Is that fair to say? Yeah, you, you were. Um, there de- definitely wasn't like it is now. I mean, I at that time, I, I wish I'd had a coach, even though I probably would have argued that um, at the time. You know, looking back at myself now, you know, 20 years later, 25 years later, for sure I could have benefited from someone who would have been able
inside of me. The unfortunate thing was the guys who we should have learned from were also still competing against in a way for, you know, uh, for carding. And, you know, there was a time when I thought that, you know, we wanted to go to the Olympics, but Mark, John, Jody Conrad had, had been doing it for so long. They kind of had a stranglehold on, on that. We were never going to unseat them in terms of points, or it would have been really, really hard. It would have meant having the right partner, having the right financial means. And, you know, we did try to do it. But, uh, yeah, it's much different than it is now where, you know, you have your own training center. Uh, even the qualification system's different. Like, there's an Ozika zone qualification. Um, you know, back in, in those days, you had to be the top 22 in the world, minus a couple of countries that would have, say, Germany and Brazil might have, and the U.S. would have three teams that would be in the top 22, but only two of them could make it because there was a, a limit. So uh, it was a little different back then. I'm not saying it was you know, harder. I'm just saying it was different. And um, I think there's more opportunity to maybe uh, do, do a little better on the world tour now because of the diversity and number of tournaments, like your, your five, four, three, two, one star type of thing. Definitely, definitely. And you kind of hinted there at the expenses and how tough it was to go on the world tour without the star system. So that obviously created the need for some more domestic competition, or I'm sure some listeners ears perked up and heard that you were an AVP guy. So just walk us yeah. through different rules there. Like obviously, you're not a dual citizen, right? But did you need a green card or were Canadians just welcome on the AVP at that time? No. So what happened was, um, Emmy Matthews and I were going to go and play an FIVB again, uh, together. Uh, and that was in Chicago. But before the FIVB, there was an AVP tournament, and Evie had played on it already. And what happened was, that very tournament, for us to play in it, we had to sign a contract with the AVP. And because I signed that contract with Evie um, on the AVP, I was grandfathered through it. So very few Canadians can play on the AVP. You had to either have a, a residency uh, or a citizenship or had signed that agreement to be grandfathered through. So we're talking 2000, maybe 2001. And because we signed that, um, we were able to play. And I, I, I played uh, on the AVP, you know, qualifying through it, made a few main draws, got to play cards a bunch, which was great, you know, good for me. And, uh, but uh, I really, if I was going to do it, I, I should have moved down there and just submerged myself in that California culture. Now, that reminds me of a question I, I like to ask certain people. Is just, was there ever a moment you were starstruck, whether playing indoor or when you're actually across the net from like a carch on the beach? Do, do you kind of have that wow moment that you're playing so-and-so or were you such a competitor that it, it didn't really matter and you were just there to battle with whoever was across the net from you? I, I think the first time um, I played carch, for sure. I mean, he was playing with Adam Johnson and um, Evie and I were, were were playing against them. And, you know, Adam Johnson was known for his big serve. And boy, was it a big serve. Now, he wasn't a big guy, but he could he could hammer the, the ball from the service line. And then Karch is Karch. I mean, he was the guy that at that time had already won a gold medal indoor and a gold medal on the beach. And nobody had done that. So, you know, you're playing against, at that time, what I thought was the LeBron James or the Michael Jordan of, of, of volleyball. Um, so, you know, we're playing them obviously on center court in Chicago and uh, I think they beat us old school scoring 15 to six or something. But yeah, I mean, it, there was a little bit of, of that. Now, as it got on and I had to play them, you know, say at uh, Manhattan Beach Open on center court, it wasn't really a big thing that we're playing Karch again because he was coming down in terms of his, his career was still really good. But we were, the thing was like, 
we were qualifying, so we would have played four matches to get to him. So you get to play your four matches. I remember Emmy and I like were cramping up at the end of our last match. Somehow get through it, and our first match is you know uh, Mike Lambert and Karch Garay on center court in front of everybody. The Manhattan Beach Open. So you know it was a little kind of nerve wracking, but there's there's a period of time where any elite athlete has to go through that piece and and, and overcome it, um, or at least or, or at least overcome the nerves. So. Was I Star Trek? Maybe in the Star Trek. Sorry, maybe in the beginning. Uh, but after a while, it was just okay. Now, uh, what are we going to do here? We we might have come close. I think when I was playing with Gaston Macau, I think we we lost. You know, twenty one nineteen, maybe twenty one eighteen was probably the closest I ever got to him. But keep in mind, I'm like twenty eight, twenty nine, and Karch was probably forty. So he was still really, really good uh, in his forties. Definitely, definitely. And did you and uh, Evie ever get any razzing from the U.S. fans? Did they know you were Canadian, or what is it like playing in front of that Manhattan crowd? They never. So I, I guess the biggest thing, and, and people who know this or have played against him will know. But like, for example, um, Rosie's Raiders, right? So Sean Rosenthal uh, has a big following on the on the AVP and everywhere he goes, kind of. And um, I remember I was playing with John Moran, and we were in the main draw. We're playing Gib and Rosie and their fans are going off. They're like all over me about my no hair, about no ear or big ears, like all kinds of stuff. And, um, you know, I, we battled them. We went to three and I remember at a side change, um, you know, and they're just, you go to get your water and, um, I could see just one of their guys and I reach into our, uh, uh, our cooler and I toss one of Rosie's Raiders a bottle of water. Cause he looks like he's thirsty. And he was like, wow. You Canadians are really nice. I'm like, yep. He's like, I'm still going to chirp him. And I said, I wouldn't expect anything less. We walked back on the court. It was kind of like the, the, the Rosie's Raiders, the fans on the AVP, they're good for the game because they, they add hype to a sport that, quite frankly, needs it. Now, with you entering your coaching career, would you encourage an athlete to kind of be aware of the chirping, maybe like embrace it a little bit or were you a guy who wanted to ignore it and that's something you would pass on to the athletes because i think very few canadians have experienced what you've experienced because we're we're all so nice where yeah the oua chirps happen but i don't think it's on the same scale as what the rosie raiders were giving it to you right so what, what would be a tactic just while we're on the topic for younger listeners to try to do when they're in those environments um so i, I mean i can just i can tell you what we did last year i mean we had a situation where um and it, it just happens in canadian gyms like i don't know i remember the very first uh, OUA match I coached was Brock two years ago against Ryerson. And the first thing they're doing is hanging their national championship banner. But the fans at Ryerson had signs made up, uh, were chirping our servers as they went back to serve. And uh, then more recently in, in uh, last year, I, I, I cannot confirm nor deny this, but I did hear that there might have been some pizza purchased for the Guelph football team. And, uh, we showed up to play Guelph in their gym. Uh, it was a big match, and their you know running backs are with frying pans, smacking them in the ear of um, like not actually making contact, but maybe like call it three four feet away from our servers as they're going back to serve. They're heckling. They're doing it all. So when after we had been through that, we decided to do some some drills uh, in the gym at Brock where we were going to heckle each other and we were going to as creative as we could be to heckle so that we could kind of simulate what you might experience playing say U of T at U of T when they're banging on drums and stuff like that so I would say on the beach the difference is you know they're right there and there's really especially if you're playing on the ADP in one of the outer courts 
there's no security between you and the players, right? So if a player wants to come up and confront you or you want to confront a player, you can do that. I think in the OUA and the U sports, there is a little bit more um, regulation where, I mean, we had to, I think in our men's game, one of one of the uh, fans from, from Guelph ended up stealing one of the jerseys off of our bench, our men's team's bench, and we had to deal with that. And the, the coaches were good about it. I mean, the, the Guelph coaches were, were, were good about it. They, they sorted it out. But I think you can only go through it to experience it. And if you want to, you can try to, you know, simulate that as much as you can in your, in your drill, but in your, sorry, in your drills, in your gym, but there's nothing like actually living it. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I stand corrected. That's good. The Canadian gyms are starting to have a personality and making it fun because there is a line, but I think it's, it's good for the sport and everybody has a good time, right? For sure. I mean, there, you can, there are some pictures out there that the men, the men's team got it even worse where, you know, they're, they're faking about, untying the server's shoe like that's how close they were right and there's there's still pictures of it so and again it's good for this the sport because people can talk about it and that type of thing but you also have to keep a certain level of, of respect and it was it was borderline but um you know it was still both matches went five sets it was entertaining for the crowd i mean that uh, the win that we pulled out of that was is probably one of the best volleyball experiences i've ever been a part of so you know if you can make the fans have a great time um, they're really going to enjoy the sport of volleyball and that's better for the game. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So before we jump into your Brock stuff, you were also playing Labatt Tour. So without putting you on the spot here, is in that era the Labatt Tour comparable to the AVP? Because you mentioned John and Mark and Conrad and Jody and and obviously you would have battles with Sleener or Kadu and some other guys, right? So what was it like playing on Labatt Tour when it was in its peak as well? So it was awesome. I mean, that was kind of my coming out, if you will. I mean, I was uh, I was playing with uh, originally Mark Roberts, and we had uh, a great season together. Boy, did we have fun! I mean, that's one of the rules I think of, of, of that I've had with anything I've been involved with is try to have as much fun as as you can, but get the job done. Um, you know, you're we did, I didn't need a summer job because I could travel across Canada and was able to support my travel and you know. Um, uh, food and all the, the stuff that we had to do from prize money. Um, so it was great. I remember winning my first thousand dollars in a volleyball tournament in like 1997. And I was, I was like, I'd never seen any, that kind of money before. I'm like, you just gave me a thousand dollars for doing something I love to do. Uh, and so not only that, I got to see, like we would drive from, I think, um, Sylvan Lake, Alberta out to Kitts beach in BC. And, you know, we did it with the guys who we were playing with every week. And we would stop at Brian Gadsky's uh, house in, in BC or his parents' place and spend some time there. And, you know, then we'd go cliff jumping with Conrad Lineman or something. And, you know, we just, we had a really good time. It was an amazing culture. Um, and and I, is this a compared to the ADP? I don't know. I mean, the, the cities we were going to weren't really as, as big as, say, you know, Chicago or um, you know, LA, like, or any of the four or five beaches that, that go along that, that Pacific coast there in LA. But, you know, it, it was really cool. And we had a, a nice time with the fans. Every time we went to say New Brunswick or Rapontini is one of my favorites. I remember driving to Rapontini. This is kind of funny, but, um, we're coming into the main highway and there's, and I didn't know this, but I looked to the right. I think I was with my mom and my girlfriend at the time. And there's a lifestyle condoms billboard with my picture on it, advertising <laughs> the uh, the volleyball tournament. And I just, I was like, wow. I mean, I don't know if that's something to be uh, 
to be proud of or not, but it was it was definitely a, a funny thing. And and they would have those banners like that were went around uh, as advertisement around the, the tournament. And I was able to grab one of those and bring it home. One day I'll show it to my kids and they'll probably laugh at me. <laughs> That's awesome. And yeah, just along the same lines as you talk about like the off court stuff, I'm always interested because there's there's some people in the beach volleyball community right now that will use tourist as a negative word that if you're enjoying the lifestyle or you're partying on the road, you're labeled as a tourist. But with going out for dinner with John Child and some other guys who played Labatour, like John said, it was a point that him and Mark made that they were going to go for one, like the players party. They were always going to make an appearance, even though their expectations were to win the event. Right. So how did you find the balance of being a good guy, being in the community? But like you said, also being motivated by that prize money like what was the culture in your mind and why was it so great for canadian volleyball at the time so i mean if you're talking about finding the balance um i, I probably didn't find it until it was too late for me um at least i thought it was at the time i mean you know i, I my early years with mark roberts i mean we would we would have to play i remember we were in north bay and we're playing a semi-final and and you know we were up let's just say later than we should have been um and uh, we got we got hammered in the final in the semifinal the next day of a team that we'd beaten before. And so that's when it slowly started to kind of click in for me is that, you know, if you're going to be investing so much time in practice and money and travel that you probably need to um, handle things a little better. Um, so, so that, that was, that was that. Um, but, you know, in terms of how we, we, we did it. I mean, I remember when I went to Grand Bend, I'd gotten friendly with, um, uh, this family that opened the gables and, and they had a, a hotel and they would give me a free room. And um, so we would stay there and they would host a party and, you know, the players w- would go and with Mark and John, it was kind of different. Like a lot of times they were coming back to play on a domestic tour, but there may have been an FIV tournament somewhere. And I know Jody and Conrad had the same thing where they could have been going and playing for more money, but they knew that they had to stick around Canada for so many events. That's why they always played the nationals because it it meant something to have our best athletes playing in our national championships and on our domestic tour, whenever they could. So, you know, finding the balance is is key, but you know, if you're going to treat it as a profession and I think it's starting to become that way now, and there's a lot more being put into it. You need to make sure that you save your beer drinking and partying for, you know, the, the day the tournament's over or when you have off time, if you have off time, because a lot of times the tournament could be over, but you might need to get your, your car, your van, your train, your plane and hop uh, and go to the next tournament. So, you know, just kind of managing your time and pick and choosing the spots you do cho- choose to celebrate, I think is probably important. And I think that's why you're seeing, you know, some Canadian teams and athletes in general become better at the sport. Nice, nice, yeah. And uh, I, I put Sula on the spot. And I'd love to get your impression here. So there's there's people in volleyball that you reach a certain age and you're kind of like, oh, I'm really just getting worse at volleyball. I don't want to do this. And they switch sports where anyone who's ever been around any of the Ruffies or some of the OVL uh, teams that used to play. And even I think some have even lasted in the one volleyball era. Like, why have you and your friend circle continued to play and to play at such a high level? Like, is it just that is your social circle or you're just not ready to give it up because you can still play at a high level? Like, what is the the core here of what the Rough Riders are about and why all these top players have found each other and continue to play our sport at such a high level? Well, I think that the first piece maybe doesn't have so much to do with you know, the level of play, but it has to do with the level of fun you have with the group of, uh, of individuals. And, and that's where 
know, it doesn't matter if I'm coaching, you know, the Hurricanes, coaching Brock, or running the Rough Riders. Like, if you can have more fun than the other team, you're usually going to win a lot of matches. Whether that means having more fun with respect on the court or having more fun off the court, like all of those teams, the Solars, the Big Up, the Varsity Blues, they all ended up becoming Rough Riders. And I think the reason for that is we just did things differently. We would do things like go to a tournament, but you know what? We're going to go to the Doble. We're going to take a 32-foot motorhome. We're going to you know, pack the fridge full. We're going to wear costumes, and no one else in the tournament is going to wear costumes, but we will. And um, we're going to have as much fun as we possibly can while we do it. And I think that that type of uh, culture is very contagious, and, uh, and, and, and that's the reason why people want to keep coming back and, and being together because, you know, we have fun. Then you've got to keep yourself in shape enough so that you can go on the court and perform. And for some guys, that's difficult. Um, you know, I started playing soccer again, uh, you know, a few years ago, um, and, and that helps. But I also live, I work in a wellness clinic. So I have access to a gym. Um, I have a nine rounds membership. Uh, I also have a LA fitness membership. So for me personally, I do a lot of things and I've just started taking up pickleball, but I do a lot of things that will help me stay in shape. But I think if you do that and, and keep in mind that you got to function properly, it's not just about jumping high, hitting hard and running fast. It's also about having your joints function uh, optimally. And, and that's a big piece. So I think we've been able to do it because, you know, um, we have, guys like George Lubachek, I mean, he lives and breathes fitness. Um, you know, uh, you know, Sula's a Cairo. Sleen's got a training business. Um, I'm in wellness. Uh, you know, you, you have these guys that can keep doing it because they just don't stop. And one of my favorite things with the, you helping with the research for the show is I found out you were a roughie in high school. So were your parents just not aware of what being a rough rider entailed? Like, what were you exposed to as a teenager uh, while you're still playing club at a high level and obviously went on to play university at a high level? But what was it like being exposed to this men's team and, and just the the lifestyle I think it comes with playing in, in a top uh, men's league? Yeah, so there was at that time, right? This was my OAC year. So I had an opportunity where I was either going to go to Scarborough and play with the Solars, which would be Mike Griffin. Mike Sleen, Dan Lewis, BJ Vias, Craig Donan, all these guys, or um, Andreas Sherm at the time uh, and Andy Fenton, they had this team that was, you know, coming in called, they were the, the Red Eyes, and they basically had to leave that name so that they wouldn't get fined for not playing a, 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 an OVA uh, provincial bronze medal game, and then the Rough Riders were born. Well, that year was my OAC year, and they were invited to play in some university tournaments. So now I'm, I'm playing at Mac at like 17, 18 years old, playing against all the guys who were at Mac, all the guys who went to Western, all the guys who went to Waterloo. We played Rutgers in the final of that. We also went to the Waterloo tournament. Uh, we, we, I think we lost in the final of that. But, you know, I was playing OUA volleyball at 18 when I wasn't even in university at the time. Now, obviously at that time, those guys were in their, their heavy party years. So, you know, I remember uh, Andrew Reed saying to me as he came to pick me up after a high school game, he asked me, did you bring your drinking glass? And I didn't even know what he meant. Um, I was like, I don't know. And the next thing you know, they're trying to see, I think they, my initiation was um, Matt Reed had a glass of roses uh, that had been on his TV set for, I want to say, I don't know, like at least three or four months. And for me to get a free uniform, I had to drink the water. Uh, and we're talking like thorns, rose petals and all. And I did it. 
Uh, you know, they had a bunch of stuff uh, that they that they did for me. Some of it, what I can't mention, but um, anyway, it was uh, it was a fun time. I got. Uh, a crash course of what being a rough rider meant and um you know we tried to hold that that standard uh, on and off the court um, ever since now when i first moved to toronto i was lucky enough to become uh, pretty good buddies with christian redmond and we were working at pvb and solstice together and we were watching an ovl actually sorry he might have been playing it but he, uh, he invited me to play watch this ovl that was happening at st mike's i think and that was the first time i got to witness the shirts off warm-up and you hinted at this earlier that like you guys were just having more fun than anybody but where did these little traditions come with the, like you said the costumes the the shirts off warm-up like where did all this stuff come did it just happen to be a fun idea once and all of a sudden everybody gets on board and you do it every time like yeah, I think it catches on. I think the shirts off piece individually um, or on an individual level was we would do it after winning a tournament in the hotel room afterwards. So we just all, you know, I think Andy Fenton or someone would come in and say, I'm not sure why our shirts are on right now. We would just, we just take them off. Um, and we were in good shape back then. I can't say the same. Like there were times probably when we maybe shouldn't have been taking our shirts off, but, um, but, but that, kind of started from from celebrating a victory and it became a rite of passage and then what happened was is that we weren't we, we wouldn't do it in a tournament unless we made the final so now if we made the final that would be something we would do and we would get the snickering and the and you know the the comments in the background from guys like mike sleen and you know even mike spence when he was playing for big up and 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 those guys and even sula but then once they became a rough rider they're like the first guys taking their shirts off and, <laughs> and, and just being part of part of it right and and that's the thing like it doesn't matter whether it's a costume like you know um there's things so <laughs> the very first thing I purchased when Brock gave me the uh, a Brock credit card was a WWE style wrestling belt for three hundred seventy five dollars. I remember the former athletic director sees me in the hallway and he, he brings me over. I, I think I've been hired for maybe like a month, and he says, "So I just take a look at your you know your statement," and he's like, "It says the very first thing you purchased." Is a three hundred seventy-five dollar gold-plated wrestling belt. I said, "Yep." He said, "What? What? What? What's that? What is that?" And I said, "Well, that's what we're going to give to the person who has the best passing stats at the end of our our, our weekend of turn of turn of, of match play, and um, you know, and then I'm going to engrave the person who wins it the most." on the side of the belt. I think you mentioned uh, before to me, Atlanta Norris. Well, she's won in the past two years, so I'm putting her name on the belt for the second time. I don't know. Every, every team might have their own culture, but we have, you know, the, the, the championship belt for passing. We have an axe for kills. We have a shield for blocks. We even have a stinky foot for the worst play of the game, right? One of the things we've done since the Rough Riders, and I've carried it through all my teams, we have a best and worst. And at the end of the tournament or the end of the week of play, everybody, including coaches, talks about what their best thing they did and what their worst thing they did was and you you get to experience the highs and the lows with people and you know i remember one time snake was like oh i didn't think i had any worse and then of course like someone like chip is like oh yes you did remember when you did this so <laughs> it builds camaraderie and, and uh you know snake's obviously a great player so uh but but you know you build the, the the team culture and the camaraderie and you actually build a bond um with your teammates because you're having so much fun doing that type of thing Nice. And uh, I had to ask Selena this, and I think we both came to terms that uh, it was his 
gym teacher inside of him that made him want to organize and do draws. Cause when you guys get together for the Calder cup or any other event, like it's legit, like there's a draft involved, everything's tiered. You're a big guy in the organization, just making it easy for people to attend, right? Like you'll be the one who gets the hotel block and schedules everything and makes yeah. it easy. So what makes you want to be the logistics guy to keep this going? Cause I think there's, there's a lot ton of organized people involved and keep it happening, but you make it so easy for people just to come in, in and out. Right. And still kind of keep the tradition alive. Yeah, you would think that organizing um, adult adults period would be easy, but it's often not. Um, <laughs> you know, like some guys are late to commit, and then you get the other guy that that, that has the greatest ideas once he shows up. And, and I mean, Mike and I were even talking about this past Calder Cup. You know, these were great ideas if you'd given to us two weeks ago, but now you're trying to make a change. You know, the morning of, um, and that's difficult. Um, so, so what what makes me want to do it? Well, there's two things. One, um, I think Mike and I know that someone's got to do it if we want to keep basically seeing each other and, and keep these events going. But the other thing is I'm probably a bit of a control freak and I want it done right. So if you're going to drive with 14 people to Michigan for a volleyball tournament, why don't we just get a motor home? Because that's more fun. And, uh, and you want to maximize your fun time as you're doing it. If you're going to do a tournament, let's all dress up in costumes because it's fun. And, you know, besides Halloween, what else are you going to dress up in a costume? So, um, I think, uh, you know, those are big pieces. It's all about the enjoyment of the, of the group. Uh, and we just want to keep it going for as long as we can. So by now, the listeners have learned that you've played at a super high level. You're still playing at a high level. Your your career is in, in health and wellness. But what made you want to add that extra layer to it and get into the coaching game? Like what did somebody from Halton give you the call? Did you volunteer? Like what made you break into the coaching world? I was I just moved to Burlington and somehow the hurricanes got wind of me being there. And I said, you know what? Yeah, I should do this. It's time to give back. The sport's given me so much. And, uh, you know, I've met some great people, had some amazing experiences. I still continue to have amazing experiences in the sport. And I think what happened was, you know, uh, Julie Roscoe from the, the Hurricane, she was the president of the club. And she said, hey, look, we have this team that needs a coach because Scott Hunt was leaving to go back to coach Sheridan, I guess. And she's like, we have our, our team. Actually, went nationals last year, we don't have a coach. And I was gifted this group of talented athletes that, you know, half of them are on D1 scholarships. The other half are, are key uh, key contributors on their team. And I guess I, I fell in love with the idea of coaching. And, and you know, we were fortunate enough to, to win nationals that year. And, you know, I remember saying to them after we won nationals, um, I remember just pointing outside and a limo pulls up. And, you know, we, we then left Earl's in Edmonton and then went and got ice cream in this limo and we all celebrated it together, right? And that, that was the piece because I remember them telling me that what they did the year before is they won nationals and they all went their separate ways and, you know, I think a couple of them went to McDonald's for, you know, a happy meal or ice cream or whatever. So, you know, that season really made me understand, one, I needed to do a lot of homework on girls volleyball because I didn't know very much and it made me want to keep getting better but it also made me uh want to begin to continue to coach uh and i wanted to take it to the highest level and and you know with the whole brock piece i just got lucky i remember being uh, uh i was with timo at a coaching symposium in ottawa and um i'm going to get my car in the parking garage and uh, doug haynes who was the men's coach at the time uh and i start talking and he started telling me about brock and I thought, wow, I mean, that's not too far from me. I could see myself, you know, coaching there if I would be lucky enough to get it. No, quite frankly, when I got the, the job, I only had maybe four years of club experience. So I was probably not 
you know, uh, or, or, well, I don't want to say not qualified, but I definitely didn't have as much experience as some of the other people who had applied. Um, so I was fortunate enough to get it. And, um, you know, um, it was, it was a great experience to, 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 to coach at that level. And instead of having to prepare for say six or eight teams in a weekend, you prepare for one or two and, uh, and you get to practice with your athletes four to five times a week and really look to do something in the sport of volleyball. So uh, I was happy to continue to do it. And I, and I want to hopefully go as far as we can with it. Now just one more question before we take a, a deeper dive into Brock, because I'm going to forget, but it seems like a trend is popping up where you find ways to really celebrate and make winning feel special. And I, I'm a big sports fan, whether it's hockey, baseball, football, anything. But one thing that I thought was fascinating when Kansas city rebuilt and they had that really good baseball team, they brought in a guy who was from a former winner and he brought in like little traditions that they, when they won, they were going to pump music and it was going to be this big party. They had the wrestling belt thing to give shout outs and make it kind of silly for guys. Like it seems like you found ways to do that, whether it's a limo, to go get ice cream whether it's a championship belt like how important is it for you to kind of make little things feel special so you don't like lose the value of a regular season win or a preseason win or a really good practice like do you really find time to celebrate and make sure that everybody's having a good time and the learning's kind of fun and it's it's a good mood to come to practice every day yes um and, and like first of all I'm, I'm a sucker for the magic of sport right like i love to see the underdog win um uh, i love to see the team that's been winning for so often also win right because those are two you know opposites but they're both kind of cool you know because you know neither one is always the way things should go so i think it's big you have to celebrate your victories i mean for me sometimes the best part about winning a, a tournament with the rough riders would be the two or three hours in the hotel room before we went out because you're just, everyone's on the equal. We know we were collectively the best that day. And it's all about that feeling, that experience. You can't, you can't duplicate that. When you, when you go and win something with a bunch of your peers, you create a bond. And, um, you know, you should celebrate that bond within reason. I mean, you can't go and win, you know, the semifinals and beat the number one seed in an FIVB tournament and part of your face off and then be a mess for the final. Uh, I mean, I mean, people know that, but um, you can take that also to, you know, the university level where, you know, you, you can't, you can't celebrate too hard until your season's over. And once your collective season is over, um, then maybe you have your final team and your party because you're going to have to get back to work. So if you win your big match and beat the number one team in the country on Saturday, you know you're back to practice on Monday. So have a have a controlled piece, a controlled celebration, and um, you know you just have to time it right. Nice, nice. And yeah, you and I were talking before the show. I had a chance to work with uh, on the Team Ontario program with uh, Emily Armstrong and Alana Norris and Darby Taylor and and do some beach stuff with Laura Kandata. And not, not to offend anybody, but I'm confident in saying that Brock was underperforming. And obviously with you getting there and taking a silver this year at OUA without pumping your own tires, uh, what do you think was the big change that you were able to bring to that program? So like I said, they would stop underachieving and kind of reach, I think, the potential that a ton of people in the volleyball community thought that program had. So I think the first thing I did was let them know, I'm not saying anything about my predecessor, but let them know that I believed in them. I think it was, I, I remember maybe about this, after the sixth open gym, I kind of said to them, I said, you know what, you guys aren't a last place team. And I said, I'm going to leave it at that, but we're going to figure this out. And then I think we set targets. And, and for us, like we're, I don't like setting goals. I like making statements because I mean, people have heard me say this a hundred times, but you know, a statement is something you have to back up. If I say, you know, Hey Josh, I want to have a Ferrari when I'm you know, 55. 
um, and I'm going to have a Ferrari and I'm 55. Those are two different things. So if you see me at 55 and you say, Steve, I thought you were going to have a Ferrari, I'm going to have to have an exp- explanation. I'm going to have to account for why I don't. So if you say we are making the playoffs, then everybody has to behave in such a manner that's going to get you there. So I think that you know the first thing I would have done is, is really let them know I believe in them. Two, let them know that we have to have fun along the way. Um, that's a big piece, and we're going to find ways to do that. Um, and three, I think there was a couple of tactical uh, decisions we changed um, with, with what we did when we served and what we did with our, our attack, and, and that was it. And uh, it was all there. The girls just they, – maybe they just needed something a little different, and, uh, and I was able to provide that. And um, it, it's kudos to them because you know they're the ones on the court getting the job done. Now, without giving away any secrets, my coaching ears are perking up. And I'm just wondering, when you make these statements, are you boiling it down to a daily task? Do you have just checkpoints along the season? Or how do you make sure you're, you're measuring these goals and the athletes are staying connected? Because I think it's easy to say in the fall, we want to win national championships. But to stay connected to that over the length of the season becomes a challenge, right? So how do you become like a daily task within your cultures with the teams you work with? Well, I think you have to go back to it all the time and you have to say, hey, remember, this is what we said we are going to do. Not that we want to do. We said we are doing this. So if if your behavior is not indicative of someone who wants to be a champion, don't expect to be one. And, you know, it, 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 uh, it's worked the past two seasons. I mean, our first year we were making playoffs. And, you know, even now it was actually Laura Condotta that pointed it out to me at the end of this year. Our goal this year was, sorry, our statement this year was we are going to win the West and we're going to get an OUA medal and we're going to go to nationals. And we did all those things. So Laura said to me in, our, in kind of one of our exit meetings, she said, Steve, do you think we sold, we sold ourselves a little short? Because once we'd beaten Guelph in the semi at OUs, we had done everything we said we were going to do that year. But we left a little bit on the table. And, and this is where, as I said, like I get mesmerized by the magic of sports. So I'm watching after our semifinal win, I'm watching athletes hug their parents like they had just won it all. And girls are crying and there's signs and all kinds of crazy stuff. And we have to play U of T, who's a really good team the next day. And I, I could have been the ogre and I could have shut it down. But I let it go because there was about a half an hour of celebrating that probably should have been about 10 or 15 minutes. And uh, and then I had to pull them back into the room and, 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 and say, okay, look, we've got a team against U of T. But you could tell they were just so, so happy because a lot of them, I would say 90% of them, had been through the last place years and, and, and the struggles that they went through before. So for them, it was like, you know, finally, you know, finally we had achieved um, something that's, uh, you know, worth mentioning or something that they'll always remember. So, you know, do we talk about it every day? Maybe not every day, but we definitely talk about what we're, we're, we're trying to do and what we're going to do. And, uh, and it goes everything from getting your work done in the classroom to what you're doing before practice, what you're doing after practice, what you do on your holidays. Like we're not allowed to go skiing over Christmas break. We're not allowed to go tubing over Christmas break. Like these are things that could, you know, uh, could hurt us. And if you get an injury, um, you could have a key piece of your puzzle missing. 
man, this is, this has been awesome. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm hesitating to cut it short, but you're a family man, a businessman. You're probably heading into practice right now. So I I promised you an hour. Uh, but one thing that I'm sure the listeners, as soon as they saw your name pop up is they're, they're looking ahead to this part. So with all your experiences through our sport and it's still going, you're still building, there had to be a funny or unique experience happen. So I was wondering if you could just give us a laugh before we let you go and you can get on with practice and everything else you got to do today. There's a bunch, um, and you know, I was I was gonna tell a story uh, about James and I in uh, in Belgium, but I think I've got a better one now. Um, so with the Rough Riders, we went to El Salvador um, to train against their national team, and um, we uh, Orlando Flores uh, hooked us up with that, and we uh, ended up playing in a tournament against like Nicaragua, I think it was uh, Panama, obviously El Salvador, and. Um, it, it was a really weird scenario because I remember we're, we're, we're sick. Um, we'd eaten some of the national food where, you know, we were like kind of stuck to the toilet for a good piece of time. We, we had a scenario where we ate this spicy thing. And um, I remember George Lubachek and I just like not being able to leave the bathroom. Uh, and then um, the next time we got on the court, for some reason, I had an itchy eye. So um, I grabbed the towel off the side of the net. There was only one towel. And I started trying to clean my eye up. The next thing I remember is Mike Spence looking at me. And he's like, ooh, what, what's going on with your eye? I'm like, I, I was like, I, I, what are you talking about? And um, somehow I was able to go see a mirror after the match. And um, my eye, my entire right eye's eye socket had become inflamed. So you couldn't see my eyelids. You couldn't see anything. All you could see was my eyeball. And um, so I go over to see the, the, the therapist and um, she lays me down on the table and she's looking at my eye and they bring over the towel, the same towel now <laughs> that was hanging on the, the rope on the side of the net. And so she takes the towel and she's trying to fix my eye and then she's like, oh, well, this isn't really working. And then she takes it and puts it on my other eye. So now at the end of the day, both of my eyes are now you can't even see them. And they were looking at me and they, I looked like, um, what's that movie? I, I looked like the, one of the things from some monster from, from, um, uh, oh, what is it? Goonies. <laughs> I, that's what I looked like. Like they were, they were calling me the guy from Goonies and, um, I had to go to the doctor, get antihistamine. So, you know, I mean, there's been travel stories, but there's nothing that I've ever experienced like that, where I basically almost lost both my eyes from a towel. And my jo- the joke is, you only have. I always tell Orlando. I said, uh, "Your country only has one towel." Clearly, <laughs> they have to use the one on the floor on both of my eyes. So that's one of the good ones. Oh man, that's amazing! So yeah, thanks again for for sharing all that you did and for all your involvement. Our, our sport is definitely better because of people like you and everything you've contributed. So thanks for coming on and, and sharing some laughs and all the stories. And and like I said, I can't wait to get you back on because I feel like there's a ton of more stories to share. Oh, there is. And I just want to say, you know, what you're doing here, Josh, with this podcast is great. Um, I got to listen to a, you know, a bunch of people that I know and some people that I don't, their, their side of things. So it's a really good thing you're doing here. Uh, keep it going. And I'd be happy to, to come on with some more stories whenever you have. Awesome, man. Well, thank you and enjoy the rest of your day. You got it. You too.